0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily Now.TV chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, June the 23rd, 2022. Um, We're four days or five days off Father's Day. That was on Sunday. We had a special Father's Day show. Featuring a a young, uh, not so young, reasonably young female writer, a feminist writer, Catherine Angel, who wrote a book called Daddy Issues, Love and Hate in the Time of Patriarchy. It's a kind of anti-Father's Day book, I guess, in some ways, certainly a a book which um, investigates the nature of fatherhood and daughterhood It's interesting on the the Wikipedia page. um, The the uh, the, 16th, uh, the 17th century Dutch painting featuring a, a young girl and her father is painted by a man called Josephus Laurentius Dickman, which I think is probably symbolic in some ways of what uh, Catherine Angel was going to say. Anyway, Catherine didn't show up and we're doing the uh, interview this weekend, which I'm looking forward to. However... For those of you who are interested in complicated father-daughter relationships, we have another conversation today with a novelist this time, a first-time novelist, Alison Fairbrother, who has a wonderful new book out, first-time book, The Catch. Uh, Alison is talking to me from Brooklyn today. We joked earlier before we went live that um, Brooklyn is full of first-time novelists. You can't throw an apple without hitting one. So, Alison, congratulations on the book. Uh, I don't want to put you in the uh, in the daddy issues, Catherine uh, Angel Camp, but the book itself, in part, is about daughter father relations, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, it is. It's about a young woman, a female journalist in Washington D.C. in her early twenties, um, and her beloved father dies very suddenly and leaves her a kind of strange, mysterious object as an inheritance. And she tries to solve the kind of mystery of what this object is and what it meant. And in doing so, she learns a lot about her father, that he was more complicated than she thought. So I take no umbrage at the term daddy issues to describe some of what I'm looking at here in this novel.
0: I mean, Uh, uh, Alison, we've all got daddy issues, whether we're boys or girls. Um, But uh, your book um, explores, I I think, in a perhaps slightly, and again, I don't want to speak against Catherine, but I'll talk to her at the weekend, slightly more balanced, ambivalent way, the relationship between fathers and daughters. Don't you think it's always true? I mean, novelists are in this business of showing that, Real life is always more complicated than it seems. No one ever really knows their parents, do they?
1: Absolutely. I think that that is one of the main things I was exploring about the book is that you come to know your parent when you were first a child. And of course, you often put a parent on a pedestal, especially in the case, I think, of... A, um, a child who's lived through a divorce, for example, wh- who doesn't get to see his or her father as much as perhaps a mother. Often divorced children live with their mothers in this culture. And so um, there's a tendency, I think, to put a father on a pedestal. And in the case of a divorced dad, I think who sees their child only part of the time, um, you know, anyone can be sort of fun and charismatic and loving if they're only. Um, available part time for their child, and so there's a really interesting dynamic that develops around um, children, sort of like as they grow, starting to see their father or and their mother as well. But I'm looking at fathers here in particular as a more complex, um, a more complex human, a more full human with kind of like the full range of emotions available to them. And that's such an interesting and, and can be sort of traumatic and difficult transition, I think. And that's one of the things I was looking at in the novel.
0: You um, always look in novels at acknowledgments. Uh, the, the name of the father in the book is James. And in your acknowledgments at the end, you credit your father, James, who uh, unfortunately is no longer with us. To, to what extent is this book autobiographical?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I did lose my father in my early 20s, and I don't think that this character, James Adler in the book is my father, and the narrator, Ellie, isn't me. But I did um, spend a lot of time thinking about that time of life in your early 20s when it's a very exciting and vibrant time that's sort of full of possibility. And often you're living out away from your family for the first time, you're sort of on your own and you're coming to terms with who you want to be in the world. And it's such an exciting and such a vulnerable time. And then to lose a parent right at that time of life, as Ellie does in The Catch and as I did in my life, it really throws you back into the past. And I think that grief becomes this really complicated laboratory of feelings about the past. And so that dichotomy of being interested in the future and interested in who you will become, but yet being obsessed with, the, with memories of the person that you lost, sort of obsessed with your past, was really interesting to me. And it made me think about sort of what can one make from grief? And I think that is really what I was trying to get at.
0: The book, in many ways, like many first time novels by uh, younger writers, is about growing up, about childhood, parents, and the experience from going from childhood to, 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 uh, to, to being an adult. We've done a number of shows with nonfiction writers about how to grow up. One of my favorite conversations with the Stanford academic Julie Lithcott Haynes. She's been quite critical of our culture. She suggests that we live in a culture of helicoptering parents. So her big success was how to raise an adult, break free of the overparenting trap and prepare your kid for success. And her latest book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. In a funny way, at least in the fictional, in in, in terms of the fictional narrative, having a distant parent probably helps you to grow up. Do do you think... um, Alison, uh, a helicopter parent where your parents are obsessed with you and you're obsessed with your parents and you live in perhaps unhealthily close proximity physically and emotionally <laughs> uh, it isn't a good way to grow up. And, and, and there are lots of perhaps people in, in, in your generation who are still struggling to grow up. Is that fair or am I? Uh, reaching for cultural stereotypes.
1: (laughs) I think that it it certainly is probably fair for some people. I mean, I think that the wonderful thing about being a novelist is you sort of don't have to traffic in these broad sweeps, right? And so I would hesitate to say that it's better one way or the other. But I think that your point is so interesting because it does suggest that, you know, there are styles of parenting that are cultural um, and, and, and looking at those styles and understanding how they affected the, you know, adult children is so interesting. and such rich territory, I think for a novelist or for a nonfiction writer. Um, I think in the case of this novel and, in, and in the case of Ellie, you know, she sort of feels that, um, her, at one point she says, I think, um, you know, having a father who was divorced and sort of married many different women and had many different children as a result, it sort of split him up into these different father-sized pieces. And her whole life, she had kind of been competing for the biggest pieces of his love and, and of his attention. And so it's sort of the flip side, I think, of the helicopter parenting model. Um, but, you know, I, I think rather than saying one is better than the other, just understanding these models and understanding the sort of cultural things that feed into them and then affect, you know, whole generations of children, I think is, is fascinating.
0: I have to read the first paragraph, um, Alison, it's a wonderful first paragraph and I'm sure the book's going to win lots of awards. It already got a, a very nice review in the New York times, which is quite an accomplishment for a first time novel. Um, it begins my father, a minor poet celebrated holidays out of season. He couldn't get custody of all four of his children at once, so he moved the fall, spring, and winter holidays to the heat of summer. A man who had fathered four kids with three different women was unusual in our Maryland town. Neighbors gossiped and strangers commented. My father struggled financially, and I suppose he could have resented the way we tethered him, but he didn't. Over and over, he brought us into his world. I'm guessing that took a few rewrites.
1: <laughs> Thank you for pointing to the artistry of it, because of course, writing, you know, good writing takes many revisions. So I did work on that for a long time. Yeah.
0: But you clearly, and I, and I don't want to sound patronizing, you clearly have a lot of talent. Um, how long did this book take you? And and, and what was the process? Do you, do you regret writing it? I know first time books of any kind, especially novels are really, a huge struggle. I had a, a young woman about your age on the show a few weeks ago, Erin Swan. She has a first time novel uh, called uh, Walk the Vanished Earth. She told me that it, it took six years to write and 30 years to plan. Did you have a similar time frame? How long did it take you?
1: I would say 34 years and six years sounds about right for me. <laughs> um, no, I totally agree with Erin. I think that. In some ways, I had been working toward writing a book my whole life. I mean, it had been a dream and a hope of mine. Um, But, you know, I only really started becoming very serious about the craft of fiction when I went to graduate school. And um, it took me about six years to write this first book. And some writers that you talk to say, oh, the next one will come way easier. But most of them say, it's always just as hard, you know? So, yeah, it's funny
0: in terms of length of time. I've done four books, and the first one, which was my most successful, took me three months. Wow. And every, every later one takes longer and it's a bigger failure. So, I'm not sure whether actually taking a long time on <laughs> a book is, is a good thing. I mean, do you, I don't want to ask you for the size of your advance, but I, I'm guessing uh, it, it didn't pay for much more than a nice meal. Um, was it worth it? I mean, are you happy you did it? I mean obviously it's it's gonna be a success, but you must have had moments where you thought, why the hell am I doing this?
1: <laughs> I mean, I think the writing process is full of insecurities and doubts. And, um, you know, you probably wouldn't be a writer if you didn't have those. So certainly there were moments when my friends were going out to drink wine on, you know, the roof and I was sitting inside and writing the umpteenth draft, you know, that I questioned my life choices. But of course, I'm, I'm very happy to um, have finished a novel and to have it out in the world and be connecting with readers. Um, I just, I know my editor is always inquiring what I'm working on next and hoping that I'm, I'm diligently writing and, you know, I'm taking a moment actually to drink some wine on the roof with my friends. Because... Good,
0: will tell her that. I hope she's watching. Um, Alison, <laughs> uh, 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 you're uh, also, your, your day job is in the business as well. You work as a right. publisher. Do you think that helps or hinders a first time writer? Does it mean you can't really mm. escape writing and books? or does it help you to understand how the sausage is made?
1: That's such a great question. I think it, it both helps and hinders in different ways. I think that um, it has been an extraordinary learning opportunity for me to work in the business and to work as an editor, um, sort of getting in at the ground level of a manuscript and getting to shape it alongside a writer and sort of learning that revision is about growing a novel up, you know, from from its sort of mushy and underformed state into something that's the best version of itself. And having been with so many writers who've gone through that, I have such a respect for the editorial process. And so, you know, my editor, I I really wanted to do everything she said, even when she wanted to cut some of my favorite scenes. You know, I really worked with her. Um, So I've learned so much from- Who was your editor? My editor is Kate Medina at Random House. Um, Mm. She's a pretty legendary editor. She's um, very, has very high standards. And she would send me these like, you know, um, 30 page editorial letters that just her vision of- You're
0: enormous. I mean, and you know this, Better than I do, uh, Alison, you're enormously lucky not only to have such a good editor, but an engaged editor. I mean, absolutely. The worst experience I I certainly have had as a writer is when your editor tells you your book's wonderful and barely comments on it, which means they probably Mm. haven't read it or are just lazy or preoccupied with something else. The tragedy of books, my sense is that many within the industry, many books are just written off um, immediately for one reason or another, sometimes unfairly, perhaps sometimes fairly. So many writers spend years on books, and then they're just ignored. So that's a, a tragic feature, which clearly hasn't happened with your book. Your book comes, talking about legendary figures, your book comes with a wonderful uh, blurb from Meg wallett New York Times best-selling author of the female uh, persuasion, a uh, feminist writer. Um, and you credit her at the beginning of the acknowledgements too. Do you see this as a feminist book or a post feminist book is, is is are those appropriate titles in 2022
1: it's i definitely see it as a feminist book yes i mean i think it's really trying to interrogate Um, the legacy of a complicated relationship with a father for a daughter. And it's sort of about growing up from being a daughter to becoming a woman and what that means. Um, And there are many female characters in the novel that I think Ellie, the protagonist, learns from um, and sometimes makes terrible mistakes around. I'm thinking particularly of her mother uh, rachel who's a character in the novel that i think ellie at the beginning of her sort of journey um, sort of discredits her mother in a lot of ways but over the course of the novel she really learns to appreciate the things her mother gave her and the things her mother sacrificed for her um sort of in the shadow of this very charismatic man um, another character that i i feel shows this um, feminist side of the book is Ellie has a boss at the journalism startup where she works, and her boss is this woman named Jane, an older woman who's sort of a battle axe, like old-school st- old style gumshoe reporter, who is sort of now working for this hip DC news startup website, and um, Ellie learns a lot from her as well. So I think that within, you know, even though it is a book about the relationship between a man and a woman, there's a lot of interrogation of that relationship and then, and then learning that happens on the part of the character about the importance of, of female uh, relationships and mentorships.
0: So the females are mentors and the men are question marks. The New York Times suggested, as New York Times reviews tend to do, Uh, that your book examines the conundrum of male charisma. Is that just a New York Times speak or is there some truth to that? And uh, men have charisma and women have wisdom? Or is that again, a a vulgar simplification?
1: (laughs) That's interesting. I I don't know that I would say that, um, you know, I, I like the term, the conundrum of male charisma. I think it's a really interesting way to read this novel. I think that, you know, I hope that all of the characters are are full and rich and not only one thing. Um, but I do think charisma is very interesting, and I think performativity is very interesting, and sort of perhaps under in literature um, and the ways that it relates to feminism, the ways that it relates to female agency and voice. Um, become really interesting. What we say about a woman with charisma versus a man with charisma, you know, how we talk about that, I think, is what you're getting at in your questions. Sort of women have wisdom or maybe they have shrillness or maybe they have, you know, quiet strength. But men sort of in our culture, I think we sort of assume that men have charisma or they have, um, you know, uh, gravitas. Right. So we have this whole different language for talking about people. Um, so I, yeah, I think that the term is really fascinating and, and I, I don't object to it.
0: There's also a, a, a and again, I don't want to sound like a New York times reviewer, but a a, a brooding sexuality to your book. It's a book both about your fictional father or this fictional father as a, as a sexual being, which I think children struggle to imagine their parents as, Mm
1: -hmm. and also
0: the, the sexual awakening, the, the growing up of the, the female character in the book um is there such a thing as sexual charisma um and is that important do you think in 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 going from being a child to an adult
1: yeah that's an interesting question um i do think that that sort of magnetism perhaps sexual charisma as you call it is a very important feature of um you know, so so many narratives, right? So many stories that we ingest, uh, on television and in novels and movies. And I think that it's, um, re- I think it's a really interesting way actually to look at like the complicated dynamics of uh, a woman growing up under the influence of a charismatic man. Um, I think that, you know, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, I think that... It has always struck me as interesting that a father, a sort of heterosexual father at a certain point has to reckon with their child, their daughter as a sexual being, right? And there's this sort of cliche or joke that fathers wanna keep their children, they wanna keep the women from dating, you know, they wanna keep their daughters like in in the home, right? And and there's so many jokes about that, but I think there's a real, that points to a real um, agony around, like, recognizing the sexual um, identity of a young daughter. Um, And that's always been a really interesting concept for me. And uh, I hope that that is, you know, a theme that is uh, explored in The Catch.
0: I mentioned uh, Catherine Angel earlier, her book, Daddy Issues, Love and Hate in the Time of Patriarchy, is, is nonfiction. She's steeped in Freud and those other turn-of-the-century psychoanalytical, psychosexual theorists, particularly men thinking about male, but particularly female sexuality. Is there any theory in the book? I mean, you're a, you're a graduate of a good university. You're obviously well-schooled, well-read in lots of areas. Did you read Freud? Did you read any of the other theorists of female or male sexuality or of, of identity?
1: Mm, I have read Freud um, and I've really enjoyed, I actually recently read Interpretation of Dreams. I had never read it before and I found it so fascinating because I think so much writing, um, philosophical novels, you know, so, so many of the incredibly important literary works of our, the last century kind of refer to him in various ways and refer to his models and his thinking. So it was really wonderful for me to read that.
0: Um, and especially, I yeah, don't... sorry to jump in. I know that's a yeah, very nice thing to do. But um, uh, especially, I think one of the things we've lost is this ability for fiction writers to incorporate serious stuff and vice versa, the serious people are losing their fictional abilities. So Freud was, you know, by Thomas Mann and many other leading novelists, mm. was, or even Mahler, you know, as a as a, as a, as a musician, uh, 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 conductor, com- composer of music was integrated into their creative work. So I think it's always good if there's a bit of theory in novels.
1: I agree. I think though that also on the flip side of that, I would say that we have this understanding that literary fiction does have to be sort of serious and staid and somber. Mm. Um, and I think that that is problematic. I mean, I think that some of the best works of literature convey a sense of lightness and humor, you know, even about the darkest material, there's, there's, they they are still able to represent the way that life can be joyful and surprising and um, the paradoxes of life, the coincidences, you know, all of that I think is such rich territory for a novel. And so I hate to think that, you know, we're, we're sort of um, promoting this other side of, of, of understanding that literary books have to be so somber. Um, I tried to write a book that had serious themes and messages, but that also had that sense of lightness because I think that there are moments even when your life is totally shifting beneath your feet, that you're still able to connect to those other, you know, full range of human emotions. Um, So I, I completely agree with you about theory and profundity in novels, but I also think we have to leave room for the hilarity.
0: I know in my relationship with my daughter, um, we got quite close because of uh, our. I encouraged her to become interested in sports. And this mm-hmm. is one of the, the, the key themes in the book. The catch refers to a baseball. Uh, your fictional father was uh, a, a one time uh, pitcher. Um, and uh, the ball is one of the. I don't want to give away all the plots. We want people to read the book. Um, the New York Times suggested maybe you slightly overdid that, although I'm not so sure when I was reading it. The catch refers to two major Bay Area sports phenomenon, the famous uh, Montana, uh, Montana to uh, Dwight Clark catch um, at the Super Bowl. And then even more famously, uh, I guess it's not San Francisco when uh, when Willie, Way- Willie Mays played for the New York Giants, his famous baseball catch uh, in the 1954 World Series. Did you, are you a a sports fan? Did you have to do a lot of research on sports for the book? Are you a baseball person?
1: I love those two mentions of the catch. Thank you so much for bringing those to my attention. Um, I I am a baseball appreciator, but not a serious follower, I guess, of any sport. But The Catch, you know, to me, I was actually talking about the title with um, a wonderful writer, Susan Minot, yesterday. And she was saying that The Catch is one of those rare titles where it means something and it means it's opposite in a way. I mean, it's not a perfect opposite, but it means, you know, to, to understand or to have or to hold something, but it also means to sort of have something slip through your grasp or to, to be unable to comprehend it. Um, So I, I sort of love that duality of the title. Yeah, in
0: in a funny way. You know, the catch is that one time where you don't drop it, which is why Mm. the Montana to Clark at the end of this game, or especially the Willie Mays catch, which is a miracle, a physical miracle. Physiological miracle is so memorable because we all remember the times, or we don't remember the times when the ball sailed over the Mm
1: -hmm. the
0: fielders' fielders shoulder and then they just missed it because that's just the nature of things. So the catch, both in, in the... The history of the New York Giants and um, the San Francisco 49ers is a kind of miracle. Is there, a, is, is there a an element of the miraculous of the religious to your book?
1: Oh, that's so interesting. Um, you know, I think maybe not the religious, but the miraculous, I guess, in the sense that I feel it is, it is sort of miraculous to... Um, grow into adulthood and to sort of find a way forward. And yet we all do it, but we all do it in such different ways. I mean, of course, unfortunately, not everyone makes it, but most people do, and they do it in in interesting ways based on their past and based on this, you know, utter individuality and complexity of their circumstances. And I think that, you know, along the way, we have things like joy and nature and poetry. I mean, I tried to also, there's poetry plays an element in this novel. Um, James Adler, Ellie's father, is a poet, and his most famous poem is called The Catch. So there's a kind of catch within a catch within a catch. And I, I used that poem as a kind of clue for the reader to follow the first clue that the reader gets about who Ellie's father really might have been in his complexity. Um, so I think poetry, you know, is, is um, uh, I wanted to approach that sense of wonderment a little bit in the novel of, of um, discovering something from literature. And um, uh, you know, uh, about about religion, I think it's so interesting that you called up that idea. Um, Ellie's father's funeral does take place in a church, and I think she feels really like an outsider in that space, you know, but she does gravitate toward these other sort of mystical, magical things like poetry, like cycling through DC in the sort of steamy night air, and being one of the only people on the street, you know, there are also other ways to experience majesty, I think.
0: And of course, the film i say the film that was a freudian era in the book which i hope will become a film already has a kind <laughs> of soundtrack you're one of the central characters um in the book is called van and certainly the work of van morrison haunts in some ways i guess mm. the book I, i'm not sure if you're a fan of van morrison he seems to epitomize a profoundly imperfect but brilliantly talented individual did you choose to put Van Morrison in because of that, or you just like his music, or it was just haphazard?
1: I did. I'm a huge Van Morrison fan, in particular Astral Weeks, which I think is possibly the most perfect album ever created. Yeah,
0: Um, I I, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it's certainly amongst the most perfect.
1: (laughs) Okay, amongst the most perfect.
0: And Um, he is, and what's interesting about Van Morrison, he's amongst the most imperfect human beings, and yet he's capable mm -hmm. of such remarkable creativity and achievement and at the same time certainly recently he hasn't exactly distinguished himself
1: that's true absolutely but that song astral weeks i think also plays a role in the novel and it was the song that my own father chose to play at his funeral um, so that song is very powerful for me personally. And I used um, the character of Van and his namesake Van Morrison as a kind of homage to to my real father in the novel.
0: Yeah, which I think is, is, is very touching. I saw a news piece earlier about Amazon showing off their Alexa feature that mimics the voices of your dead relatives. And I thought of your novel when I saw this, because, of course, what you're doing with your novel, whether it's your fictional father in the book or your real father, is you're leaving a profound, multifaceted voice, as Van Morrison does in Astral Weeks, as you do in your writing. The problem with technology, of course, especially Alexa, is that if you record the the voice of a dead relative, it does no justice to that relative, does it?
1: Yes, I completely agree with you. I hadn't seen that news item, but I find it somewhat horrifying. <laughs> I think, though, that the the urge to capture everything about the person who's gone feels very real to me. I remember when my father first died, I couldn't bear the thought of losing any scrap of him, you know, like any item of clothing, any voice memo that he had ever left me um, any possession of his. And I think it was an important stage of grief to hold really tightly onto those things. And the process of letting go of some of those physical possessions has also been the process of, of healing, I think. But I recognize in that news item, the the um, obsessiveness of those early stages of, of grief, of loss.
0: Yeah, I was just reading an oral history of 9-11 and some of the people who lost Loved ones uh, on that day um, maintained a cherished, you know, affection with physical items that were found after the disaster uh, or, or from their home. So, in many ways, this is the catch, um, uh, 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 Alison. Uh, the book is a catch, isn't it? Everything's a catch, really.
1: I love it, yes. <laughs>
0: Well, the book's out, and, uh, and I'm, I, I didn't want to give away too much of the story because I really want people to um, to read it. I'm sure it's going to do very well. I mean, I hope uh, some of those six years or 34 years of work gets repaid in financial terms. Um, so congratulations again, Alison, on the book. It's a wonderful achievement. Uh, what else uh, would you – you're steeped in books. You work in books. You're a writer as well. What else would you suggest people read perhaps – alongside the catch
1: um there are a number of amazing writers working today who are really sort of um mining that place that we were talking about earlier between sort of profundity and humor and i love that space and i would highly recommend a book called the office of historical corrections by danielle evans Uh, she's a short story writer and it's a collection of short stories that's about race and racial reckoning in the United States. But it does that work through these really spiny, witty, interesting characters. Um, So I I love that collection and I I highly recommend it. Another writer working in that same vein, I think, is Miriam Taves, um, Canadian writer who's very brilliant. And her favorite, my favorite book that she's written is called All My Puny Sorrows. Um, which is so acerbic and funny and witty, but doesn't lose for a moment that um, moving quality, you know, that profound um, human connection and interpersonal relationships that are built so beautifully. Um, So those two women writers, I would highly recommend to your listeners.
0: I was looking for something at the beginning of the book, uh, a dedication you don't have, but you do have an image of a bird at the beginning. And it kind of reminded me of Cy Montgomery's image of hawk, she was on the show um, a couple of months ago talking about her new book, The Hawk's Way. Uh, Is there something about birds in the book or is that just a a coincidence?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's a subplot about Osprey, um, the seabird. And at one point in the novel, Ellie, who's a journalist, she's a she works for this news startup and she um, is an environmental journalist and she um, sort of manipulates a work assignment in order to learn something about her father. And that work ends up taking her to um, meet people who are doing osprey conservation. And she learns about sort of the Atlantic ecosystem and the role of a seabird in it. And it's also, I think, you know, among the more image the more beautiful images that i'm attached to in the book is a scene in which you know she's watching these osprey in the sky and and thinking about sort of her own soaring and whether or not she's capable of it um which is a question you know we all have and I think also her work as an environmental journalist, she becomes increasingly more aware of the importance of the natural world and the environment and its interconnectivity, right? She's looking at a whole ecosystem instead of just looking at herself. And that is, I think, also a metaphor for growing up.